Lord Jesus, we thank you for the faith that you've called us to and acknowledge that it isn't us who have reached to you so much as it is you who have reached to us and it's somewhere we've heard your call and it has been so loud and so profound that we've had to say yes to you. And so in that we found life. We pray today, Lord, that you would quiet our hearts and our minds to hear this good word of yours, for it is right and it is true. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sixteen years ago, I stood in front of a committee of twelve to preach a sermon that I hoped would win their confidence in me and so pave the way for my ordination. You see, I was hoping to move to Seattle from Southern California and receive a call from a church in Mill Creek to an associate pastor position. The problem was I wasn't ordained yet, and the final leg in the ordination process was to preach this sermon and then to be able to defend it theologically. Well, I remember preaching on the parable of the talents and speaking of God's desire to use the talents that we've been given so to invest those in the places where we live and work so as to influence others for Christ. And then I came to the punchline, my best concluding line, sort of exhorting this committee to courageously live out their faith for God's glory. Well, you know, in the Bible, 12 is a good number. It's a biblical number. There were a lot of good things happened in 12s. You know, there were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 disciples of Jesus. There were 12 loaves left over. You know, when uh, Jesus did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Well, on that day, when I finished preaching the sermon, there were 12 really quiet Presbyterian committee members. <laughs> the silence was awkward. It was terrible. And then finally, one woman broke the silence and she said, Nice job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> she said, I, I really like your passion. She said, You know, I, I, I used to have that. I, I, maybe it was when I was younger like you, but I, I'm not sure that was very realistic. I not, you know, I, I've never forgot her comments. I remember thinking to myself at the time, How tragic. To, to lose your passion and so settle for, for a life that's just kind of going through the motions. And I wonder if there isn't some of us who are here today who are experiencing that, where we've begun to settle, where we've set dreams and passions on the side and so settled for a lesser thing. Life has become conformity and passions have become distant longings. Or maybe in our path to fulfilling dreams and passions, we've chosen a journey that's led to wealth and power and success and pleasure and countless other experiences we sought after just to feel alive and in control again. But the problem is that there's a cost, a high cost associated with those things. They cost us the one who's ultimately able to bring us life in the first place, God himself. They cost us as our ambitions and passions drag us away from the very life of God. Well, the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. Over the last several weeks, we've been preaching through a series on discipleship. And we've come to learn that we become fully alive when we become disciples of Jesus. Well, our text today has something to say about being a disciple, of stepping into this adventure, of following Jesus for life. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, in good Presbyterian fashion, the text just happens to have three things to say about that. <laughs> So uh, I'd like to look at that. The first thing that our text has to say 
is that we have a purpose as followers of Jesus. That following Jesus means discovering and embracing the call that God has placed on our lives. Now, Scripture often uses metaphors to help us understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in our text this morning, it's no different. That the author is comparing Christian discipleship to running this race. But the question is, what is the race? Well, we only have to look at the chapter previous to see that there is this long list of faithful people. Abram and Noah, Moses and and Jacob. Courageous people, faithful people, movers and shakers. But you know, as we look at this faith hall of fame and we look at it a little more closely, we find something else. We find that, you know, these were broken people, fearful people, people who had experienced tragic moral and spiritual failure in their lives. Abram lied. Jacob deceived. Moses murdered someone. David committed adultery. These are imperfect people. Some of them like you and me. Others of them worse. (laughs) Really. The truth is God isn't looking for perfect people. What God is looking for is people who will just reach out and take hold of what God is calling them to and then fulfill it. Moses and Jacob... These people that are on this list aren't there because they were able to manage sin well. It turns out they managed the sin very well. But the reason why that they are on the list is that they heard the voice of God. They felt the wind of His Spirit. Their their hearts were ablaze in passion and they reached out and seized the calling God had given them. And that is one of the the main components of, of being a follower of Jesus. To, to listen for the voice of God and then embrace it. That's the race that we run. That's the race that we run. Frederick Buchner writes that a calling is the place where our deep gladness meets the deep needs of the world. Now what that means is that oftentimes our calling is the intersection where our particular talents and skills come together in a place where we find joy in serving others. The issue is, though, that we live in a culture that uh, doesn't value calling. In fact, tends to marginalize it, treat it as unimportant, and so it shoves calling off to the side of our everyday Christian experience. The consequence of that, then, is that we end up as Christians living in an isolated bubble of security and of comfort where these things then begin to imprison us because, you know, we're not risking anything. We're not sacrificing anything. We're not reaching out in faith for anything. And so life becomes bland and passion begins to wane. My daughter, uh, my oldest daughter and I, when she was really young, used to love to make up games. And one of our favorites, we'd play at night, and, and it was around bedtime. I, you know, I, I went to dad's school. That's the time that you make up those games, you know, get kids all excited and everything. And, <laughs> and uh, so uh, what we would do is after we'd read, I'd read her a story, and then I'd slip off the edge of the bed and lay down alongside of the bed on the side, sort of hidden from her. And that was her, that was her cue. She'd start to crawl to the edge of the bed and 
knowing that I was down there but not able to see me, she suddenly let out a, a squeal that was half laughter, half yell. And then she'd dive off the edge of the bed head first. And I'd catch her sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time I, I caught her. And, and then I'd lift her back up and toss her back onto the bed. And she'd elevate over the bed a couple of feet and then bounce on the mattress, you know. Laughter, squealing. And, and then we'd go through this cycle again. Dive, catch, most of the time. Throw, you know. Dive, catch, toss, dive, catch, toss. It was a wonderful time that we'd spend together. Cherish memories. But you know, I wonder how many of us are stuck on the bed. Stuck in a place where we don't feel like we can leave the security and the comfort of the mattress. And so life begins to become bland for us. And we risk losing out on the thrill of taking a God-sized leap into the place where God is calling us. Following Jesus means rediscovering our passion by finding our purpose and embracing, discovering and embracing the calling God has for each and every one of us. It brings me to our second point, and that is to say that we have a plan to run by. Following Jesus means facing our fears and the sin patterns that inhibit us. Now, the Hebrew Christians that this letter was written to, they were stumbling and compromising their Christian faith. What had been for them, what had started as heart-thumping, risk-taking you know, kind of faith, they, they were substituting for life on a mattress. And they were reverting back to the former lives that they had before coming to Christ. God was becoming less and less a part of their lives. Why? Why is that? Well, you know, whenever there's a God-sized call, there's always fear. Fear of failure, fear of ridicule, fear of inadequacy. I know those fears. Some of you may too. I remember being afraid of fully committing my life to Jesus Christ because I was sure, I was filled with fear that God would send me to Africa, you know. (laughs) So guess where I'm going in June, you know. (laughs) I I remember being being afraid to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with my best friend because I was fearful that he'd think I was nuts and lost my mind. I remember being afraid of reaching out in outreach in my local community the very first time because I feared that I would be absolutely inept, (laughs) that I would be unsuccessful, I wouldn't be good for anything. I know the fear. You know, God called Moses and said, lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, ask Aaron. (laughs) God called Jonah. He said, go preach the gospel to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I'd rather go swimming instead. (laughs) We know the fear. Fear is probably what keeps us most from embracing our call. And it's interesting in this text, as we're reading this text, the word translated as way, it means to slow down, to impair the progress. It means to get in the way of the function or the activity of something. The Hebrew Christians were fearful 
You see, fear is our, the natural tendency when we are afraid is, is to withdraw, is to hide from the thing that we're fearing. And the Hebrew Christians were withdrawing. Persecution and ridicule were causing them to withdraw from faithfulness to Christ and being a, a public witness for Jesus. You see, life on the mattress is always safer and it's always easier. Well, fear is probably the thing that keeps us most from embracing our call. And it's interesting that the opposite of fear in the Hebrew, it means to, uh, to latch on to something, to attach ourselves to something. Now, this word translated in the English is courage. The idea is that we latch on to, grab hold of what is right and what is good, and we don't let go. It's sort of a bulldog mentality. Now, you put these two images together, that what, what the author is calling us to is laying aside what weighs us down, our fears, and laying aside habitual sin patterns, and then latching on to what is good and what is right and what is true. God's call for us. Now, that involves an incredible act of trust, doesn't it? Because just attempting to lay something down doesn't mean I'm going to lose the fear. What it means is having the courage to risk latching on to what God is calling us to and trust Him for it. And that's the point. That the more we trust God, the more we open ourselves to His power and His presence at work in our lives. Trusting Jesus means, and following Jesus means that we will uh, surrender our fears and our habitual sin patterns to Him. Well, the third point then that I want to come to is that we have a person to focus on. Following Jesus means that we will give Him our undivided attention. Now, verse 3 in the uh, the Bible that we're reading today, the translation, it says something like looking at Jesus. And uh, I think that's a rather tame translation, frankly. I like the NIV. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And the idea is that we look intently at Jesus, so much so that we are consciously avoiding all the other distractions around us so that we can focus on the main thing, Jesus. Now, I'm not a runner, but I'm told that uh, in running, we have to keep our eye fixed on the goal, on the finish line. And to look around, we'll, we'll end up slowing down. That a runner needs to keep their heads and their eyes focused on the finish line. A follower of Jesus needs to keep their heads and their eyes focused on Jesus. But it's tempting to look around, isn't it? I, I like to look around. I, I look around and I see some folks who have a lifestyle that I think is, boy, it looks pretty enticing. It looks pretty favorable to me. There's a lot about it. And, I, and sometimes it can cause me to wonder, Lord, have I, have I really heard you right? Is, isn't that for me? Instead of, you know. I, I have some in-laws that own a place in, in a Palm Desert and it's on a golf course and they have a jacuzzi out on the patio overlooking the golf course and and that's enticing. I, I could do that. You know, I could do life like that. And, but, you know, that would mean some drastic life changes for me. Professional as well. You know, all sorts of things. When you think about it, the grass is always greener, isn't it? It's tempting to look around. Or maybe we look around at some of the other people who are running the race with us. Other disciples. And we compare ourselves to them. That's easy to do. To see how much they're reading their Bible, to see how much they're coming to worship, to see, boy, all the ministries they're involved in. 
And as we do that comparative analysis, it begins to, to discourage us. It breaks us down. It, it causes us to want to pull back and, and, and fall, fall away from the race and, and to give up. And so lose out potentially on what God would have otherwise done through us. Text says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and pioneer of our faith. We will experience no temptation. We will experience no trial. We will undergo no anxiety, no disappointment, no discouragement that Jesus hasn't himself already experienced. Jesus is the author and the pioneer of our faith. His strength allows us to do all things. His grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. Jesus is the author and the pioneer of our faith. He wrote faith into the lives of the disciples. He writes faith into your life and mine. And it's not the kind of faith that's the smile a lot, hang in there, come to church and obey the commands kind of faith. It is the believe God exists, step out and go, take a risk for Christ because it saves people's lives sort of faith that God is calling us to. I have a friend, a pastor, who shared with me one time, a group of us, that he'd been caught speeding. Imagine that, a pastor speeding. You know. <laughs> Sometimes I think we're racing, you know, I'm going to get there for you. Well, he, he claimed to be on his way to church one Sunday morning when he looked in his rearview mirror and there were red lights all over the place, you know. So he looked at his speedometer to see how fast he was going. As he looked down, he noticed that he hadn't put his seatbelt on. So, pulling over to the side of the road, he slowly reached over for his seatbelt and starts dragging it across. And as he pulled to the side of the road, he managed to clasp the seatbelt shut. Well, the police officer walked up to the window and asked for his driver's license and registration. And then he asked, uh, sir, you know, how, how fast, uh, do you know why I pulled you over? And without response, he said, you know, you were going 72 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Silence. What can you say to that? And then the police officer said, "Um, sir, do you usually wear your seatbelt when you're driving? Now, being a pastor, he gave uh, an answer that only a pastor could give. He said, well, try to. And then the police officer said, well, sir, when you're driving, do you normally, uh, do you, do you normally buckle your seatbelt through your steering wheel? it's just better to stay in bed. But you know, we make mistakes. I've made mistakes. We've cut corners in our Christian discipleship. We've done things that maybe Jesus wouldn't do. But you know, we're not alone. The Hebrews 11 list is filled with witnesses who did the same. 
The truth is that the Christian faith at its core is not about sin management. Otherwise, we'd all be disqualified to run. Rather, it's about embracing our call, living through our fears, and so finding passion once again and joy. You know, in Revelation 7, we learn about another crowd. It's a crowd of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they're gathered before God, and they're singing praise to God and Jesus who's on the throne. And I ask, how did they get there? They were invited. They were invited by some crazy Bible-believing disciples like you and me. People who embraced their calling and fulfilled it. People who took the risk, who made the sacrifice, who reached out in faith. And so I wonder, you know, as I look at that, you know, the, the beauty of that is that that's what we're designed to do. God has designed us with a purpose. And so who will be there because you invited them? Who will be reaching out to Jesus because you reached out to them? Who will be embracing them in love because you served them in selfless love? You know, the truth is that passion isn't reserved for the young. And it's not so realistic anyway. But passion is rediscovered when we embrace our call and work through our fears. It is the joy of the Christian life. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Run the race. It is the greatest adventure known to humankind. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to thank You for this adventure that You've called us into. And we pray, Lord God, that You would give us discernment to hear Your voice and the courage to step into it, even when we feel the fear, when we sense the inadequacy. Because we know, Lord, that Your grace is sufficient. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.